2: Hello, and welcome back to Strict Scrutiny, your podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it. We're your hosts. I'm Kate Shaw.
3: I'm Leah Littman. And I'm Melissa Murray. And today we're bringing you a very special episode about the importance of both state courts and
4: state constitutions. As you know, if you're a regular listener, we're a podcast largely about the Supreme Court, and we started it because we thought there was a dearth of the kind of commentary we wanted to listen to about an institution that is largely and dangerously invisible to much of the public, the United States Supreme Court.
2: But the United States Supreme Court is by no means the only court that matters, and on lots of questions, it's not even the most important court. And if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you probably also know we spend a lot of time talking about the United States Constitution, and guess what? That is also not the only constitution that matters. Each state, of course, has its own constitution with protections that sometimes extend well beyond what the U.S. Constitution has been understood to protect, and those are really important documents as well.
3: Tackling state courts and state constitutions in a single episode is very, very ambitious. Probably not as ambitious as hiding a bunch of classified documents in your basement at your golf club in Palm Beach, but still very, very ambitious nonetheless. We initially decided to focus on the state courts. And as we got into the research on state courts, we realized that we couldn't talk about the courts without talking about state constitutions as well. And that became even more clear after what happened in Kansas. And we talked about the ballot initiative in Kansas in an earlier episode. Um, But There are other upcoming ballot initiatives that have real repercussions for both state courts and state constitutions, and there's a big one coming up in Michigan, which I know Leah wants to talk about. So that all made us want to expand this frame from simply talking about state courts to also think about state constitutionalism as well.
4: And fortunately, we are going to get a big assist in this ambitious endeavor from several superb guests whose intros we will keep short so we can get on quickly to the substance.
2: Our first guest is Miriam Seifter, who is a fantastic scholar at the University of Wisconsin Madison, who has been writing for years about state institutions, including but not limited to state courts, and also about state constitutions. She is also the faculty co-director of the new State Democracy Research Initiative at the University of Wisconsin Law School. You can find that initiative at their website or follow them on Twitter at UW Law Democracy. Miriam, welcome to Strict Scrutiny.
5: Thank you for having me.
2: Our second guest is Jessica Bullman posen at Columbia Law School, who is a wonderful scholar of federalism as well as constitutional and administrative law generally, and who's written a ton about various dimensions of the complex relationship between states and the federal government. So, Jessica,
1: welcome to Strict Scrutiny. Thanks. I'm really excited to be here with all of you.
4: Next, we have Daniel Nishanian, a political scientist turned journalist and the founder and editor-in-chief of Bolts, a publication that launched in early 2022 to cover the nuts and bolts of power and political change from the local up with criminal justice and voting rights as its two core focuses. You can check out their coverage of the local and state officials that shape these issues and the political movements that are brewing around them at BoltsMag.org. Daniel, welcome to the pod.
6: It's great to join you. Thanks for having me.
4: And last but not least, we're
3: joined by Alicia Bannon, the director of the Judiciary Program at the Brennan Center, and she's leading a new Brennan Center initiative that focuses on state constitutional jurisprudence. So
7: Alicia, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much for having me.
2: So let's dive right in. As we said, we're going to cover both state courts and state constitutions in this episode. So let's start by laying some groundwork on state courts as institutions. Now, listeners to this podcast know that federal judges are appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Miriam, can you start by walking us through how judges on state courts are selected?
5: Sure. I'd say there are at least three big things to know here. Um, One, as you would expect at the state level, is that there are a variety of approaches to state judicial selection. But a common theme is that state high court judges in most states stand for an election of some fashion. So right off the bat, a major difference from the federal level. Uh, The most common method of selection uh, for state high courts is a statewide election And the next most common is a system that's often referred to as the Missouri plan, named for its first adopter, which involves an independent nominating commission proposing names to a governor who picks from the list. And at the end of a first term, those judges then have to stand for a retention election, meaning a yes or no vote uh, by the people. There are also a bunch of other permutations. There are states that allow for gubernatorial appointment without a retention election. There are a handful of states that use other combinations of nomination and election. And there are two that rely on legislative appointment. A second thing that I think sometimes gets missed is that within this variety of approaches, one near constant fact is that state judges serve for a limited period of time. Again, unlike federal judges who serve with life tenure. Most commonly, state court judges serve for something like a six or eight or 10 year term. um, And that means that they have a tighter tether to the people. They face accountability for their decisions, which can have pros and cons. There are a few states that do things differently, some that allow for a much longer or even life term, but pair it with a retirement age. Um, But only one state, Rhode Island, resembles the United States Supreme Court in allowing for life tenure with no retirement age. The third significant fact about judicial selection that I think is worth knowing is that at the state level, this is a more fluid phenomenon than at the federal level, by which I mean it's not uncommon for states to change how their judges are selected. Sometimes these changes respond to a particular problem that happened or to a change in philosophy. And other times these are really politically charged fights. So in all of these respects, the varied approaches often featuring elections, the shorter tenure of state court judges, and the fluidity of how states are choosing judges, state court judicial selection is really quite different from federal judicial selection. Can I just follow up on that last point you mentioned,
4: which is there's been some fluidity in the appointment and retention of state court judges? Because I think people have been focused on federal judicial reform, judicial reform on the federal level. But actually over the last decade, if not more, there have been considerable reforms to the structure of state judiciaries, including state supreme courts, um, including you know what some people – I think, have accurately described as state court packing. So could you tell us a little bit more about some of the fluidity or changes in the structure of state court systems?
5: Sure. So there are um, a couple of examples of successful movements to pack state high courts, I believe, in Arizona and Georgia. There are also efforts to change state court's judicial selection in more subtle ways. So one thing that has occurred is changes to the structure of the nominating commissions in states that use that method, usually giving the governor more control over those nominations instead of having it be selections by the bar or by some other entity. They give more control of that to the governor. That's something that's happened in Florida And then just recently in Montana, there was an interesting development where the state Supreme Court rejected as unconstitutional a GOP-backed ballot measure that would have changed judicial selection from a statewide election to a districted election. And this is another episode in what is now a sort of heated battle between the state's legislature and its high court. There was an argument by the proponents of the ballot measure that the state Supreme Court was corrupt in various ways and that a geographic districting scheme would have somehow improved the court's representation. But critics decried this as a form of judicial gerrymandering. And the Montana Supreme Court rejected the proposal, that is, they are not letting it go onto the November ballot, in large part because they had a directly on point precedent that interpreted the Montana Constitution as precluding districted elections. Uh, but just a lot of churn and public debate and ongoing proposals to shift the way that state high courts are selected. Again, sometimes in these really politically charged ways and other times in ways that are more subtle or that may respond to some problem or some you know, um, incident that occurred. And the Arizona change
4: specifically, I know that was a GOP-led effort. Um, What was the Georgia one? Was that similar?
2: Alicia, do you want to jump in on this one?
7: So Georgia, too, was a was a GOP-led effort that led to the addition of two seats on the Georgia Supreme Court. And, And I will say that that has been a trend in a number of states. So there's been a real asymmetry in interest. Um, with respect to state courts, that both is both with regard to changes in their structure, like what Miriam was speaking about, as well as in judicial elections as well, where we've seen a lot more attention in recent years on the right, um, to, you know, essentially try to get more ideological control over those courts to give political actors more of a say in who's sitting on the bench in a bunch of states.
4: You're saying that Republicans are more concerned and attuned to increasing and maximizing their own political power, especially in the courts. Why, Cal have
7: Who would have thought it? And sometimes with the same players as well. So if you look at who's been involved, for example, in pushes around federal judicial nominations, many of the same players have also been focused on state courts as well. It's one thing to have sort
3: of a consolidation of political ideology on a state court, but can you tell us a little bit about, just not to put too fine a point on it, the complexion of state courts? Are these places that are going to be more diverse than the federal courts?
7: Well, as of now, I'd say definitively no. So we've, we've been at the Brennan Center, have been looking at um, diversity on state Supreme Courts and just put out a, an updated set of data in, in May. Currently, there are 20 states um, that have all white state Supreme Courts, and that includes 12 states where people of color make up at least 20% of the state's population. And so we're seeing across the country, states that are very powerful, making you know, decisions that impact communities in a wide array of ways that really look nothing like the communities that are being impacted by those decisions. And at least by a bunch of measures, that lack of diversity is far worse than what we see on the federal courts, particularly after the past few years where there's been um, with respect to To the federal courts, a real push to bring greater diversity, both racial, ethnic, and gender diversity, as well as professional diversity
4: to the federal bench. And what about the general docket of state courts, Alicia? Like, what do those look like, both general dockets of state courts, but as well as state courts of last resort?
7: Well, about 95% of all cases are filed in state courts. So they are, for most people who are interacting with our court system, state courts are where it's at. And state supreme courts are the final word in interpreting state law, state constitutional provisions. And so they're, they're very important. And they're deciding cases on a wide array of issues, everything from voting rights, redistricting, reproductive rights, a number of criminal justice issues. They also hear very important commercial cases, sometimes with million or even billion dollar stakes. So these are very consequential courts, but often courts that really fly under the radar. Most people, don't pay attention to their state courts. They don't know who sit on their state's highest courts. They don't tend, even even under the very low bar of people paying attention to the judiciary, state courts really have struggled to get that public interest and attention.
2: And I think actually that's a good segue uh, to bring you in, Daniel, both what Alicia said just at the end of that answer and her earlier reference to the kind of asymmetry and political mobilization around and attention to state courts. Can you talk a little bit from your vantage point, very closely following state and local races, about just kind of how the political right and the political left have approached state courts and state elections historically?
6: Yeah. You know, when I try to talk to people about the importance of state courts and the fact that they fly under the radar so- so dramatically, as, as Alicia was just explaining, I tend to get a bit of a skeptical response because I think a lot of people assume if it's so important, then of course, there's going to be a lot of people who are thinking about it and are very actively working on it. And surely the state parties, if not the national parties, are very invested in, in who's sitting on the court and what impact that has. You know, but that's really not the case. And there are so many dramatic and constant instances of the ball being dropped I guess, especially on the left or on the Democratic side. And I think that's really important to frame our our, our discussion again, because there's such an asymmetry between the role that these courts play and the role that they could play going forward, given the conservative stronghold on the federal bench and the actual reality of what's going on. One go-to example for me is Wisconsin, perhaps has the most polarized state Supreme Court or one of the most polarized Supreme Courts in the country. At the moment, it's 4-3 on the conservative side and doing very important decisions um, just very recently on, on mail voting, for instance, on the conservative side. But in 2017, just after Trump's election, when there was a lot of energy on, on the left to win these state elections, the a conservative justice in Wisconsin went unopposed in the election. And that, that one justice was still on the court as 4-3 court has huge repercussions on a swing state. You know, um, this coming year, in the coming fall, Democrats have already effectively conceded a state Supreme Court election in, in Ohio, again, a very important state. Or let, let's take Georgia that we were just talking about. Um, one very... Remarkable stat that I came across a few months ago when I was looking at Georgia is that between 2012 and 2018, Georgia held 12 uncontested elections consecutively for the state Supreme Court. And that streak was finally broken in 2020 when, when four candidates ran for two seats, but all candidates were conservatives. Um, so just to give you a sense that it's not because the state races are important that there's uh, attention to them. And the same goes for appointments. The, the New York High Court is almost entirely made up of appointees of Governor Cuomo, uh, a Democrat, but the court leans conservative, in part because of the appointments that that Cuomo has made. And only very recently, it's been very interesting in New York, because a year ago, there was a sudden rise of activism, advocacy on the left to try and get... Governor Cuomo to not appoint a particular person and then to try and get the state Senate to oppose them. That was very rare and very surprising that there was that kind of attention. And, you know, the point here isn't to schematically say that the left is sleeping on all this and the right is going all out. I think that would that would be false to go that far. But it is, as we were just discussing, true that there have been a lot of sustained efforts on the right to change the rules of appointments and elections in ways that are going to help them, including because we were just talking about Georgia uh, and the packing, packing of a court. There, there's a new thing that's been happening in Georgia, which is that Governor Kemp has found a way to cancel elections that are meant to happen, um, which is a bit of a, of a complicated situation. But there's so many different maneuvers happening everywhere on the right to, to try and game the system a bit.
4: So what are you all watching in terms of state races right now? And what are the stakes of these races? I know that in 2022, there are state Supreme Court elections in 33 states, but anything specific or general trends?
6: Yes. So most states this year have some Supreme Court elections on the ballot, but there's really four states that are especially important or interesting because the partisan majority of the court. Could change as a result of the 2022 elections. Uh, those states are Illinois, um, Ohio, North Carolina, and Michigan. So those are four states where um, three of them currently have a Democratic majority, one of them a Republican majority, and and they could switch. And you know, when when you think about the importance of abortion rights or voting rights, it is very clear that uh, the, par- the the partisan majority will have could have very direct repercussions. For instance, we are awaiting. Uh, Abortion decisions in the Michigan Supreme Court. Uh, there was a four-three decision on gerrymandering in North Carolina a few months ago that went Democrats' way. But there are two seats on the ballot that could flip the court and change the political makeup of decisions on on that issue going forward. Um, but it goes really beyond the states. Uh, Kansas, for instance, of course, is on uh, is right now on on all of our mind because of the referendum and six of seven of the Kansas Supreme Court justices are up on the ballot this year in a retention election. So unlike the four elections states I mentioned where there's an actual election between candidates, Kansas will just have people stand for a yes or no election, but that those are but those could involve more of uh, attention on the right around these elections and you know that's also the case in many many other states.
3: It's worth noting that the Kansas judicial election is a direct response to that court's decision recognizing abortion rights, which was then put to the voters in that ballot initiative that refused to get rid of the decision of the Supreme Court. So this is another end run around that. And we talked about that in an earlier episode with the folks from Kansas. And I just want to point out, um, Daniel Bolts has done such a great job of cataloging all of the things that are happening in state court elections this year. And if you listeners are interested in following, you can check it out at boltsmag.org. There's a state-by-state guide to the 2022 Supreme Court elections. That's worth your time.
2: Daniel walked through a lot of really critical 2022 races. And, you know, I think he didn't mention Kentucky and Tennessee, both which I think have important races, too. But it's like, you know, over half of the states, there are critical seats up on state Supreme Courts. So that's 2022. But we're also looking ahead a little bit to 2023. And I am sure we will return to this topic a bunch of times on the podcast. But in Wisconsin in April of 2023, and Miriam, I'm sure this is something you're watching closely, um, there's a primary in February and a general election in April, um, and that election will likely decide control of the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And in November of 2023, the same is true in Pennsylvania. So interestingly, Daniel, you mentioned, right, you know, in a backward looking way, there have been uncontested, really critical state Supreme Court seats, I don't think we are seeing that on the horizon at the moment. I do think that, you know, whether there remains an asymmetry. I think that may well be the case. But at least as to the races we're talking about, I think it looks as though they're all going to be quite contested. Daniel, speak up if there are actual gaps right now where people aren't, aren't running for or aren't actually uh, fighting for some of these seats. I mean, I think it's
6: interesting because we want to think i mean I, I we want to think that's true uh and I think the parties are very invested in making it more clear that they're investing resources than candidates in these races, but I think the there there's still uh, there's still issues like I was mentioning in Ohio, one of the three seats uh the current justice democratic justice is running for chief justice position in Ohio, which means because of the appointment process that whoever wins that election. Republicans are effectively going to gain a seat there, which doesn't quite make sense if you think of these these offices. They're offices that the parties are really invested in, trying to win in a partisan way, or trying to shift the balance. There, there's there's still a lot of uh, the 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 way in which these elections, these uh, judges are approached, is just different than other offices, and and we're not quite seeing the level of of attention then that you would expect, I
7: think. One other thing I'll be interested to see this November is also how these races are run. So for example, we saw in the last election cycle, nearly $100 million was spent. Most of that came from outside interest groups. A lot of it was dark money. Um, There has been this asymmetry of interest where you look at who is actually investing in those races. There were a lot of right wing national groups that had multiple state strategies where they were engaging in a number of different judicial elections. We've started to see some of that from forces on the left, but at a much lower rate. And so one thing I'll be really interested in seeing is really does that spending finally um, you know, start to equalize a little more, as I think we are seeing more interest from the left in state elections, just really understanding the stakes as the federal courts and the U.S. Supreme Court have taken such a dramatic rightward shift. I'm also going to be really interested in what the advertisements and the kind of rhetoric and tone of the election looks like. So for example, you know, are we going to see, you know, judicial candidates talking about the big lie? Are we going to see judicial candidates talking about abortion rights? You know, um, if we've looked historically tough on crime, rhetoric has been, you know, really significant in judicial elections. Sometimes um, candidates have campaigned on issues like gun rights, issues like gerrymandering. And so I'm also going to be watching closely how some of these very salient issues Issues are, are penetrating or not into, um, into these races as, as voters are preparing and educating themselves about the courts.
2: One thing that is interesting about these judicial elections is that some are partisan and some are nonpartisan, right? So not all judicial candidates run with an R or a D next to their names. And so that, you know, ordinarily available heuristic or cue for voters is not always available. And even if it is, historically, candidates haven't campaigned when they're running for a judicial seat in exactly the same way that candidates have campaigned when they're running for other sorts of elected office. Um, and so I guess maybe this is a, a, a one, one place where we might pivot to talking a little bit about, you know, you mentioned Alicia, the big lie. There are these questions about sort of there are partisan lines, again, not always present in judicial elections, but there, I think, are also these emerging kind of pro and anti-democracy lines that are an important sort of guiding principle in judicial elections right now. This is a moment in which we are confronting a lot of, in the wake of 2020, but also before it as well, very serious threats to American democracy. And I think that there is a way in which thinking about judicial candidates in a kind of pro and anti-democracy way might be useful in addition to, or in lieu of, in some instances, sort of partisan labels, right? They're like, are candidates or are they not committed to basic precepts of democracy? And I wonder whether we will see that kind of rhetoric being actively deployed in these elections.
6: You know, I think that I think that's a great point. And we are seeing a couple of candidates for Supreme Court right now, I'm thinking of an Alabama candidate, for instance, who's running right now, um, who has flirted, uh, based on what we've seen publicly, with some of what you're describing, Kate, about um, the big lie, or at least that Trumpian effort. We're also seeing, you know, there's obviously a, a, a long history of other sorts of voting uh, voting uh, rights issues that come up that aren't obviously related specifically to the big lie or what might happen in 2024 if, if Trump runs again and tries to overturn the election, um, and gerrymandering decisions right now, those are really things where candidates have clashed or incumbents have taken very clear positions on what they think of their state's um, gerrymanders in places like Ohio. Um, But also campaign finance issues are also very interesting in Montana. um, In Montana, the Republican candidate for justice is an election law expert who has worked uh, with the Republican Party to try and erode the campaign finance protections of the state, so it's you know it's interesting. That's not necessarily the same at all as the as when we think of threats of the big lie. But to think of someone with that experience, that background, then making it onto a state court, obviously is going to have uh, repercussions on voting law in coming years.
0: You like to watch new stuff, right?
3: All right. So the bottom line here is that these courts are incredibly important, and that may be true now more than ever when we are seeing unprecedented threats to democracy in state legislatures and from state executives. And that was true in the run-up to the 2020 election, and it continues to be true today. Um, These state courts are in a position to either check some of the things that we're seeing, these anti-democratic moves, or they could credit or even facilitate them. So, All of that to say, Miriam and Jessica, you have written a lot about the question of states as core elements in this entire democratic experience. And you've written specifically about something you call the democracy principle. And you argue that state courts are particularly well positioned to counter and in some way to respond to these democracy undermining moves. So Jessica, can I ask you? Could you explain what the democracy principle is and how it is surfaced in state constitutions?
1: The democracy principle is really a shorthand that Miriam and I use to describe the commitment contained in all 50 state constitutions to democracy, which is rule by the people. And even though each state constitution is different from the others, there really is a shared commitment across the 50 states to democracy in the form of popular sovereignty, in the form of majority rule, and in the form of political equality. Um, And this, I think, marks state constitutions as a body as quite distinct from the federal constitution and composes a distinct version of American constitutionalism in the states. Maybe I could say just a word about the three different pieces of the democracy principle and and then we'll have a chance to talk about how courts maybe have and haven't succeeded in in realizing the democracy principle um, in recent cases. With respect to the democracy principle, popular sovereignty, I would say, is really the cornerstone of democracy in the states. We talk about popular sovereignty at the federal level as well, but we've largely had, um, at best, a sleeping popular sovereign for the course of American history. In the states, by contrast, we have 8,000 amendments to state constitutions over time consistently throughout history, and we have state constitutions that in their text, reflect the idea that all political power lies in the people. It's inherent or vested in the people and they're supreme over the government. Um, So we see this both in the text, but also in the practices around state constitutional amendment, revision, um, and changes over time. With respect to how those people operate in the states, we see a real commitment to majority rule that again is not the same as the federal constitution's channels for political engagement. So whether it's with respect to amending state constitutions whether it's with respect to electing state officials from governors and attorneys generals and secretaries of state um, to legislative actors as well, to judges on courts, as we've been talking about, or in half the states uh, to direct democracy initiative and referenda processes. We see state constitutions conceive of this popular sovereign as a people that operates through majority rule, Whether there's political disagreement, the majority prevails. Um, and then we also see in these state constitutions a really distinct commitment to political equality, not only the idea, although this is critical, that the people should be equally in control of the government, but also a real concern about government favoritism, about special treatment by the government of certain uh, political minorities or otherwise. And so together, these commitments to popular sovereignty, to majority rule and to political equality uh, make for a really distinct state constitutional insistence on democracy that, again, is, is quite different from what we are used to at the federal level and provides opportunities uh, that are not always seized, but sometimes have been uh, for state courts to insist upon democracy and to uh, realize these principles in in practice.
4: So maybe just by way of attempting to get at like how courts have fared in terms of implementing this principle I guess, in light of your articulation of this democracy principle, as you were describing the tenets of this democracy principle, at each turn, I'm like, well, partisan gerrymandering is basically the biggest affront or one of the biggest affronts I can imagine to this democracy principle that is, you know, supposed to be in state constitutions. And yet a fair number of state courts have said, you know, following what the U.S. Supreme Court said held in Rucho versus Common Cause or preceding it, that partisan gerrymandering is not a claim you can bring under the state constitution for state courts to enforce. So I guess aside from that kind of big example, I know obviously some state supreme courts have said, you know, partisan gerrymandering is justiciable, and that's going to be one of the big issues the U.S. Supreme Court is going to address this term in Moore versus Harper, you know, whether state courts can rely on state constitutions to address partisan gerrymandering. But, um, Aside from that example, or maybe you know unpacking that one as well, like how have state courts
1: fared in
4: enforcing or interpreting this principle?
1: Yeah, well, maybe I can give you a a couple highlights and a couple lowlights. I think actually, I I I do want to start with partisan gerrymandering because I think even though it hasn't been um, an across the board success by any means, and we should all be cautious. You know, when we when we celebrate the successes that we see, to remember uh, the ones we don't. um, But we have seen state courts stepping up with respect to partisan gerrymandering in a way that's really not true, of course, of the federal courts when the court in Ruscio says, well, state constitutions and state statutes may provide some resources here. At least some state courts have taken that opportunity uh, to elaborate a distinctive commitment in in their their jurisprudence. So in particular, I would say Pennsylvania and North Carolina, where both of which have big elections (laughs) with big elections coming up, big elections coming up. And as Daniel mentioned earlier, right, very closely divided, especially in North Carolina, this very closely divided court um, that looked at its state constitution and said, well, this commitment, this textual commitment to popular sovereignty, the affirmative right to vote, the right to free and equal and open elections, right, and many other distinct textual provisions, but understood in the context of this historical development, mean that extreme partisan gerrymandering is unconstitutional as a matter of the state constitution. So, we do have, I would say, as a, a highlight of state courts and the democracy principle, really important decisions in some states uh, like North Carolina and Pennsylvania in particular, recognizing this commitment to democracy. I think another highlight, I would say, coming from maybe a more surprising place, uh, is a recent decision from last year in Idaho, where the state court stepped in to protect the power of initiative and referendum against the legislature's attempt to undermine it. Um, The state court looked at legislative, newly adopted legislative requirements that would have increased the number of signatures needed to get on the ballot, that would have delayed the effective date of these initiatives and said, um, no, that's not consistent with the state constitution's reservation of power to the people and the power of initiative and referendum. Um, And so the one thing that the state court did there that I think is nice and instructive more generally also, is it looked at this claim that the legislature was making uh, about initiatives and uh, referenda that we see circulating oftentimes, that they are the majority running amok, the majority trammeling rights of the minority. Uh, And so the legislature said, see, we're going to step in here and protect the rights of the minority. And of course, there should be uh, room for legislatures and courts to protect minority rights. But what the court noted in that context, which I think applies more broadly as well, is that's not what was happening here whatsoever. In fact, to the contrary, we saw the people of Idaho through the initiative, for example, as in in the immediately uh, prior example, an initiative expanding Medicaid, um, trying to protect groups that were more vulnerable, groups that were more disenfranchised or politically powerless, like the poor or like educators, and then the legislature coming in and trying to undo that. So the court said, no, here we have the people of Idaho actually as a majority body trying to protect minority rights and it's the legislature that's acting inconsistent. And I think that's a useful lesson. We see a version of that, I think, happening in Kansas. Right? We see versions of that elsewhere where these majoritarian processes can, in fact, be used to protect rights and not only uh, to undermine them. Um, But I would be remiss if I didn't say there have been some real lowlights, too. Um, So maybe just quickly to throw out a couple. Uh, if we think about Florida and Amendment Four, Florida that, is always uh, a low light. <laughs> not just um, Florida light,
3: man, Florida, not go. just
4: Florida woman, <laughs> right. Florida Supreme Court too.
3: <laughs> I love you, Sunshine State. Never change.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, the, but the people of Florida, right, with a something like sixty-five percent vote uh, adopted through a ballot initiative the amendment for changing the constitution to restore voting rights um, of many uh, people who had been convicted of felonies but served their sentences. And then at Governor DeSantis's instigation, the Florida Supreme Court issued an advisory opinion reading into that uh, decision by the people a requirement uh, that all fines and fees be paid before voting rights be restored, which given how uh, both administrative record keeping and also the administration of fines and fees in Florida works was quite clearly an attempt to undermine uh, the restoration of voting rights and succeeded. I know Alicia is going to talk about Ohio too, which I maybe as a segue, I'll just say, is a really mixed example, I think, because we actually in, in Ohio have a court that I think is recognizing the democracy principle, um, but can't in fact uh, effectuate or implement its its orders.
4: Yeah, um, in part because of the federal courts. Um, So, Alicia, do you want to kind of walk us through the
7: Ohio case study? Sure. And I, I do think Ohio is a really good example of both the promise and the challenges of state constitutional litigation and really underscores some of the ways that state courts are just immersed in the rough and tumble of politics in a way that can feel really alien to people who have principally been focused on federal courts and federal litigation. So just really briefly, in Ohio, the people of Ohio, more than 71% of the public back in 2015, passed a constitutional amendment that essentially barred partisan gerrymandering in the creation of their legislative maps. And there was also a subsequent constitutional amendment focused on congressional redistricting in the state. So the Brennan Center for Justice is representing um, community groups as well as Black and Muslim voters in the state, specifically challenging the legislative map. So I'll I'll focus on that that story for for, for these purposes. And, you know, basically what happened is the the system has a a redistricting commission. It's not an independent commission. It's a very um, explicitly partisan commission. Members include the governor, legislative leaders, other majority and minority in the state that um, drew the map in the first instance. And what they drew was, on party lines, a very extreme partisan gerrymander that really flouted all of the provisions that the people had voted for in the state constitution. So the state constitution had a very clear proportionality requirement that the districts of the state legislature were supposed to roughly match the overall preferences, party preferences in the state. They also had a provision saying that you couldn't unduly favor one party or the other. And what came out of the legislative process was a map that in a state that roughly runs about 54% Republican that entrenched a veto-proof supermajority in the state, where with around 54% of the votes, you would get, you know, something like 65% of the, the seats in the ha- in, in the legislature. And interestingly, if Democrats would have happened to win 54% of the vote, they wouldn't even get a bare majority. So it was a highly asymmetric map and just an extreme gerrymander on a whole bunch of grounds. So representing our clients, we went to, to court and and said, hey, we have a constitutional provision here. The people came together and said, we don't want partisan gerrymandering in our state. And what we had was a series of extremely strong rulings on the law. So the state Supreme Court took a look at that map and said, yes, this violates the state constitution. These are enforceable provisions. Ohio redistricting commission, you need to go back to the drawing board and redraw these maps. But the constitutional provision also had some limits. So the provision didn't empower the court to draw the map itself. It said very clearly that, that any redrawing had to be done by the Ohio Redistricting Commission, which is, you know, as we saw, a very partisan group. And so what we've seen essentially is a merry-go-round where the, there have been now four different maps that have been produced by the Ohio Redistricting Commission that have been struck down by the state Supreme Court. each round, the the orders from the court became more and more specific. And the defiance by the Ohio Redistricting Commission to pretty clear court orders became more and more clear. So the court gave more and more clear directions about exactly what the commission should do. And the commission essentially did not follow those orders. Most recently, the commission actually repassed a map that the court had previously declared unconstitutional and presented that um, to the court as their, their latest go around. Now, part of the story here was an effort to run down the clock. So we had to have an election in 2022. And there are one person, one vote requirements, federal requirements that have to be met as well as state requirements. And so, you know, ultimately where things stand is there was a parallel lawsuit that was brought in federal court and a federal court ultimately ordered a map that the Ohio Supreme Court had previously held unconstitutional. They ordered that map to be put in effect for 2022. And we're now essentially in a holding pattern, waiting for the, the Ohio Redistricting Commission to act. They were supposed to produce a new map back in May, and they have not yet produced a new map. They've said their intention is to wait for the, and to wait for the November election. And the other kind of context to all of this, as we were talking about earlier, is one, there is an Ohio State Supreme Court set of elections that's happening. And there's also been an, active impeachment um, campaign going on as all of these developments have been going. So we've seen um, pretty strong calls to um, impeach the chief justice of the Ohio Supreme Court, a Republican, who ruled with three other um, Democratic justices or justices who had run on Democratic lines um, to to strike down those maps. So in a whole bunch of different ways, we've seen this this litigation kind of get tied up in different political forces. And, um, you know, and, and where we stand now is somewhat of a holding pattern. Just one other thing I'll say is that it's also one another way that state courts and state constitutions are different, though, is that it's also a lot easier to amend state constitutions. And so I think one other thing we're seeing now is some of the limits of what this um, 2015 reform looked like. And there may be opportunities down the road to further bolster these provisions so that they have more teeth and can be more enforceable going forward. Daniel,
6: did you want to jump in on that? Yeah, I think just to add add a point to the Ohio, uh, to the ex- Ohio example, one is that what feels particularly tragic about how Ohio is going down is that because it's it's it was a it's a rare case on something so partisan where a Republican uh, justice, as Elisha was just saying, joined the, the democratic justices. And so the the rulings that were striking this these downs were um, a kind of a coalition of of, of Republican and, and Democrats at the court. But um, one thing that Republicans have done in to, to prepare the elections in 2022 we were discussing is that they've added partisan uh, ID to the ballots for the, for the first time in, in recent elections. So in 2018 and 2020, even though the candidates are technically party nominated, the party ID did not feature on the November ballot. Um, And Democrats won three out of four of the elections in 2018 and 2020 in Ohio, which really set up the possibility of the rulings that Elisabeth was just describing. Republicans obviously uh, think that the fact that the letter R was not on the ballot was part of the reason. And so they're uh, adding that now um, on the ballot. So the 2022 elections will feature R next to candidates, which in a red-leaning state in a potentially red wave year could be meaningful. But I think what the bigger picture on that is and why I want to just because of what we're just hearing about the ability of obviously uh, uh, Republicans in Ohio to strengthen their own position for the next 10 years by the process of map drawing, is that it also gives them the ability to change election rules or change the rules of those who are supposed to oversee them by using those majorities they have entrenched. And so that, that process of creating a cycle where having power allows you to keep power extends to how these state lawmakers are thinking about state courts and playing with with, with the rules of state courts now and giving themselves more leeway. So it really all comes together then in in, in pretty tragic ways, I think, in the case of Ohio.
3: Strict scrutiny listeners know that recent Supreme Court decisions have made it clear that religion is being weaponized to push conservative agendas. So we've got to tell you about a recent episode of Crooked Media's newest show, Dare We Say. The hosts explore the ongoing erosion of the separation of church and state and what this shift means for their Gen Z peers and their futures. New episodes of Dare We Say drop every Thursday on Amazon Music or wherever you get your
0: podcasts. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu.
6: Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well... Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at
5: cricket.com slash friends.
3: Can I ask a question? Like, I- I'm convinced I should be thinking about state courts and I haven't been. Like, If I'm that person and I've had this epiphany that I need to get in the game on state courts, what do I do? Like, What do you do if you know that you should be engaged in this fight, but this is not something that's top of mind? No one is channeling their dollars other than the dark money into these elections. How can ordinary people help to influence this process and to elect really great people to state courts or to prevent the uh, diminution of state court authority over these constitutional questions?
5: For starters, One basic but crucial step is just to pay more attention to state races and to engage with the same energy or more that you devote to federal races, to vote, to knock doors if you're someone who knocks on doors, to donate money if you're someone who donates money, to advocate or organize if that's your thing, and so on. It is so easy to have attention fatigue these days, given developments at the federal level, but also so important to stay informed about what's happening closer to home, where your efforts can often make more of a difference. I'll also offer a second suggestion for listeners of this podcast who are part of the legal community in some sense, whether they're lawyers or law students or law professors. And that is just to engage more at the state level with your state courts and state constitutions. If you haven't read your state's constitution, I recommend it. They sometimes get a bad rap or realistically get ignored altogether for being maybe less majestic than the U.S. Constitution because they're often pretty long and they contain a lot of detail that sometimes seem bizarrely specific, like the tolls on the Erie Canal. But they really are rich resources for the protection of democracy and of rights. So a good place to start is by familiarizing yourself with what they promise and require on these fronts. On democracy, I can't help but echo what Jessica said. These are documents that through abundant and intentional text are committed to rule by popular majorities. It's just all over the document. You know, free and fair elections, rights to vote, power that resides in the people and structures of government that allow people to select their representatives without the distortions of the Electoral College, of life tenure, or of the U.S. Senate. And then when it comes to rights, many state constitutions contain specific express rights that the federal constitution does not, for example, rights to privacy or to dignity. Many also include positive rights, like rights to an education or a clean environment. There's just so much more there than in the sparer federal document, and it too often goes overlooked. So for those in the legal community, thinking about state-level engagement as part of one's professional obligations or public service is a good way to make a difference. And if you're a student and you're thinking about course selection, this term, you know,
3: everyone wants to take con law and con law too and whatnot, but there are other places where you get these really interesting state constitutional questions, family law, for example, or places where you can see the interaction of state constitutionalism and federal constitutionalism, like the law of democracy or voting rights, things like that.
7: I'd say to write your student notes on questions of state constitutional laws. You know, someone who's been litigating state constitutional issues in so many places—kind of basic questions about constitutional history, etc.—really aren't developed, and so I think there are really ripe areas that would be quite practical. Judges want them, litigators want them. I think that's an underappreciated area for students.
6: And something I would add too is um, just to go back to something that uh, Alicia said at the beginning: is that the the background of people on these courts is very specific um we know we're seeing a with the that the, there's a a path between being a prosecutor to being a, a state court judge that hasn't been uh Challenged in the same way as in recent years it has been on federal courts. The last two appointments at the New York High Court are prosecutors. Um, uh, uh, up until a week ago, when Gavin Newsom finally broke the streak, they there they were majority prosecutors on California's court, but no one with experience as a defender. So I think just generally the idea, uh, I think for, I guess, um, students who are interested in clerking or thinking about stuff like that, but also for people who are already have, uh, you know, the, the trying to think of who ends up on these courts, who ends up uh, wanting to go in front of a commission, to be a candidate, to be on the court. There, there's all these pathways that haven't been expanded yet, I think, at, at the state level in a way that, again, very, very recently, of course, has, has started to be expanded at the federal level.
2: Yeah. And just to underscore that, so think seriously if you're a law student about clerking on a state court, including but not limited to your state's highest court. Um, And I think that you know, people should think seriously about pursuing state judicial office, whether that means trying to run for office or like throwing your name in if it's, you know, a state in which there's a nominating commission and then gubernatorial appointment, like there's a vacancy in New York uh, right now. Um, and I feel like just talking
4: Kate, up... here we
3: go. <laughs> i am a podcast
2: to host. I'm...
4: <laughs> Is there something you Kate? want to tell us? No
2: announcement. I'm not even constitutionally eligible, it turns out. Um, so you have to be 10 years barred in New York.
4: <laughs> it
3: turns
0: out. Not... Like,
4: what? You have to
3: I be have what?
2: To... Well, you have to be 10 years barred in New York and I was Illinois barred for a long time. I'm 10 time. years barred in well, New York. Well, Melissa Murray it's may have on. an announcement in an upcoming episode. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> but, but in all seriousness, like, you should. I mean, no, you'd have to leave the podcast. And so you can't.
7: Yeah, um, no, can't, can't
3: do that. But, um, can't do that.
2: You know, but, but law professors, practicing lawyers, people who haven't, you know, who don't come from, you know, the kind of prosecutor to lower court sort of pipeline, which I think Daniel is right, that has often been the way people have ended up on state high courts, the paths need to be expanded. And so thinking about for yourself or for your kind of network, professional or social or otherwise, um, thinking about serving on a state high court or, you know, at the very least beginning to get involved in those races as an active first informed voter, potentially, you know, volunteer. Every state is going to have different rules regarding what judicial campaigning can look like and campaign finance with specific state conditions in mind. There, I think, are lots of ways to get involved. And certainly you can stay up to speed on all of these developments, reading Daniel's great magazine, Bolts, which really does follow these races very, very closely um, and has become a totally indispensable resource, I think, for all of us.
4: And in the spirit of plugging state court clerkships, I wanted to make a few free suggestions as I am wanted to do on this podcast. One is law firms pay bonuses to people who go to federal clerkships and then go to the firm. And I would like to transition to a universe where they also offer Equivalent bonuses to individuals who clerk on state courts, you know, particularly state courts of last resort, but also, you know, other state courts where you get very valuable experience developing writing research litigation skills. And I think that that would frankly be a move that would affect the perceived prestige and value of these different clerkships. Um, so that's something... Do they not
3: offer bonuses for like the Delaware Chancery Court? Because I, I would imagine for many law firms, that's got to be... It varies okay. firm
4: to firm, court to court, about what kind of bo- bonus they offer for what kind of clerkship on what kind of court. Okay, so um, bonus
3: equity for state courts.
4: Yes, bonus okay. equity for state court clerkships. Um, second is, and, and I don't want to kind of make a suggestion that runs counter to the you know letting a million different flowers bloom variety of federalism we are seeing. Um, but you know I think that one reason why there isn't the same value placed on state court clerkships is because you know the citation practice, the judicial practice across these areas right differs from the federal courts And so if you do a federal court clerkship, the thinking is you get more insight into a type of practice and whatnot that is likely to be, The same across different federal courts, whereas the same might not be true if you do a clerkship across state courts. And so I wonder, like, if whether there is a kind of standardization that they might be able to do without sacrificing, you know, the disuniformity and variation that, like, accompanies benefits to federalism that might, you know, increase the odds of that happening. Um, And then third and finally is just transparency. You know, state court judges, to the extent you can make public postings about these clerkships and be in touch with law schools um, about this, that would be a huge boon.
1: I just wanted to add I think I think all of these suggestions are terrific, and especially I'm hoping that one of you will will be on a, a state high court really soon, even if it if it's a, a distraction from other uh, undertakings. but uh, I feel a need to also add I hope it's not heresy on this podcast that Since at the state level really don't have a juristocracy, it's also really important to remember that it's not just the courts. And so when you're paying attention to state courts and judicial elections, pay attention to all of the other state races that are happening, which can not only shape the courts, but also have their own role and then pay attention, as we've been talking about, too, to the ways in which there is real popular constitutionalism at the state level, whether it's initiatives and referenda or other ways in which people can be more directly involved in creating constitutional meaning and constitutional interpretations and not just deferring it all to the courts. So absolutely pay attention to the courts and, and be involved and rely on the terrific resources of Daniel's Boltz and Alicia's Brennan Center and Miriam's Center State Democracy Research Initiative as you do all of that, but also think beyond the courts as well.
3: That sounds like a good place to put a period on things. So state courts are super important. um, State legislatures are really important. And the interaction between the two is likely to shape the democratic landscape going forward for the foreseeable future. So please don't forget your state courts and your state legislatures and state constitutionalism. It's as important as everything else. And with that in mind, before we go, with less than 100 days until the midterms, it's safe to say that midterm madness is setting in. And right now, You can find all of the new Vote Save America merchandise in the Crooked store. And a portion of every single order on the Crooked store goes to Vote Writers, the leading organization focused on informing citizens of their state's voter ID requirements and helping them secure the documents that they may need to vote. So you can check all of that out at crooked.com forward slash merch for the latest drop. And then you can head to Vote Save America to find out how you can get involved and do your part in the lead up to this year's midterms, which also includes some really important state level elections involving state court judges.
4: Okay, so after we recorded this episode, something happened that only further underscored the importance of state courts and state constitutions. And it happened right here in Michigan, where I live. If you listened to some of our last episodes, you know that there was a reproductive freedom ballot initiative here in Michigan, a petition that was signed to get something on the ballot for this November election that would have added explicit and specific protections in the Michigan state constitution for reproductive freedom. That ballot initiative, the Reproductive Freedom for All initiative, received a record-breaking number of signatures And then the Michigan State Board of Canvassers, the state body that certifies election results and ballot initiatives, deadlocked about whether to allow the Reproductive Freedom for All ballot initiative onto the ballot for this upcoming November election. Specifically, the two Republican members of the board refused to certify the petitions because there was, get ready for this, some less than ideal spacing between the words in the petition. You heard that right. Anyways, the ballot initiative went to the Michigan Supreme Court, asking them to order the Board of State Canvassers to certify the ballot initiative because it met the constitutional and statutory requirements for petitions. And last Thursday, the Michigan Supreme Court did so, ordering the board to allow the people of Michigan to vote on whether to add explicit constitutional protections for reproductive freedom into the state constitution And ordering the board not to disenfranchise the nearly 1 million Michiganders who signed petitions to get that initiative on the ballot. So this fall, Michiganders will have the chance to add explicit constitutional protections for reproductive freedom to the state constitution. The entire situation is really concerning in part because of what it might pretend about Republican election officials' willingness to throw out votes or call elections into question when the votes don't go their way. Indeed, the Republican board members also refused to certify a ballot initiative that would have added constitutional protections for voting and elections here in Michigan. The Michigan Supreme Court also ordered the board to put that voting rights petition onto the ballot as well. But this episode also underscores the importance of state courts and state constitutions in this fight, this fight to vote and to have votes counted. So go out, figure out who is on the ballot for your state courts and do something about it. State courts are super important and we'll have more to say about what happened in Michigan on a future episode. So please stay tuned.
3: With that in mind, we will close it out and say thank you to our terrific guests, Miriam Seifter, Jessica Bowman posen Alicia Bannon, and Daniel Nishanian. Thank you so much.
7: Thank you.
6: Thanks for having me. It
3: was
5: great to talk with you.
2: Strict Scrutiny is a Crooked Media production hosted and executive produced by Leah Lippman, Melissa Murray, and me, Kate Shaw. Produced and edited by Melody Rowell. Audio engineering by Kyle Seglin. Music by Eddie Cooper. Production support from Michael Martinez, Sandy Gerard, and Ari Schwartz. Digital support from Amelia Montooth, with summer intern support from Anushka Chander. We'll see you next time.